Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Okay, well, welcome to another Word in Your Ear. Um, I think in the last five years, the four of the great figures of uh, 50s rock and roll, four of the great originals have all shuffled off to meet their maker, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, Fats Domino and Chuck Berry. And we've all had opportunity to reflect on the level of their contribution and also how strange they all were in their, in their very different ways. And none more strange, none more strange than Chuck Berry, who is the subject of this wonderful biography, Chuck Berry and American Life, and we're joined by the author uh, from Los Angeles, I think, R.J. Smith. R.J., Nice to see you. Um, nice to see you too. This, this, is, this is presumably the first life of Chuck Berry that's been uh, published since, since he died. Is that fair enough? That is correct. Yes, indeed. Uh, did you start this when he was still alive? Is this something you've been working on for a long time? No, no. I, um, I've been a fan for a long time. But uh, I started the book uh, shortly after he died. And I don't know that anything like this kind of book could have been done in his lifetime because Chuck was a very private individual. Certainly. And a lot to be private about. <laughs> yes. yes and that's in the book. Well, this is in the book. So let's just start, for the benefit of a, a kind of mainly UK um, audience, St. Louis, St. Louis. Is it St. Louis or is it St. Louis for a start? <laughs> Uh, St. Louis, uh, I think it's like if you call San Francisco San Fran, uh, which people in L.A. do, uh, you're the outsider. And to okay. call it St. Louis, same, same thing. <laughs> okay. So that's where, he, that's where he was born and came from. How does that, how does that kind of map in terms of American uh, history and geography? In terms of, is it the north or is it the south or, or where is it? Where does it be, belong? 
Well, that's the key question in a lot of ways. Uh, St. Louis is right um, sort of in the middle. They call it the gateway to the West, uh, but it's it's on the Mississippi River. So it's both North and South. It was kind of played both sides uh, during the Civil War here, for sure. Uh, it's it's in the West. It's It opens up to the West, but it's in the Midwest. So it's very central, very industrial, very much a 19th century huge city. Uh, so all those things are important in, in Chuck's background as well. Um, St. Louis was a, was a, you know, maybe, you know, the great migration from the, yeah. from the deep South African-Americans yeah. up the Mississippi, from Mississippi, the blues came to Chicago uh, on the way it stopped in St. Louis. Right. Now he, I, I, I read, I don't know if I read this in his autobiography or in some earlier book about him. He always claimed he'd never seen a white man. He, he lived, he, he, was, he was raised in a, in a region of St. Louis, which is called the Ville, is that right? Which was yes. largely an African-American kind of enclave there. And he always claimed that he'd never seen a white man until one day the fire brigade turned up to, to put out a fire. Yeah. A good story. Is Can that possibly be true? Well, Chuck Berry's autobiography is amazingly written. It's a wonderful poetic book. Uh, a lot of the details are a little interesting. Uh, but that one rings true, if not literally true, uh, symbolically true. It was a middle-class enclave. He, he, you know, they had their hard times. It was a depression for sure, but it wasn't like, a deep blues kind of background by no. any means. It was a nurturing community that, that and whites and blacks were in different parts of the city. So he very rarely encountered a white person until he was a teenager, for sure. Right, right. But he came from, well, would you describe it as a comfortable background? Or you say it's clearly not a, it's not a blues background. It's not poor, is it? Right. It, it's a African-American middle class. His, his mom was a teacher. His dad was a craftsman. So uh, there were hard times. Everybody worked more than one job, probably, but uh, but it was not uh, a struggling, scrapping. Where does tomorrow's meal come from? Existence. No, sure. He was he was known to his family as Charles Berry, wasn't he? That that kind of that continued throughout his life, didn't it? Yeah, uh, he he really saw Chuck as uh, a creation, uh, as the pop mask that he wore and in private his friends and his family called him charles right right i think you quite uh, somebody quite, somebody's quoted quite early in the book as saying he was a nerd <laughs> which is really probably before the nerds were invented i suppose Wait, tell you know, us a uh, more about that yeah uh he wasn't like a book nerd exactly he was just somebody that maybe tried a little too hard to ingratiate himself he he didn't have that natural flow that people wanted to be around uh he he wasn't an athlete uh, he could sing he loved music and loved talking about the records that they heard at the at the malt shop across from school um that was a way in but uh, but he struggled with girls with peers uh until music came along Oh, right, so it's a bit like Bruce Springsteen in that regard, really. You know, Kurt Cobain kind of, yeah. didn't find a place in life until learned how to play the guitar and impressed everybody. Learned how to play the part. Yeah, yeah. But also, uh, it, and it's manifest quite early in his teenage years, he's very reckless. He has a reckless streak, doesn't he? 
there's there's something about him that uh yeah he he wanted to be noticed and he wanted to be noticed in, in almost any way he could he really wanted to get in your face uh and uh in good and bad ways yeah he 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 um yeah he got in lots of trouble early because he stole a car didn't he with uh, with school friends when he's what 16 or something like this as a teenager, he went to, to uh, reform school, as he called it, uh, for armed robbery and stealing a car. Now, armed the, robbery? That's quite serious. Now, now, the weapon was, he always claimed, and it, it never turned up in the court, and I'm sure they didn't even bother to save it or anything, was, uh, was a fragment of a gun that he found in a parking lot, he said. I don't know if that's true or not, but he certainly wasn't someone who carried a gun around a lot in his teenage years, so that could be true. Um, I'm sure uh, they threw the book at him and his two friends that they were going to California, across the country, to uh, to see the world, to see life, to, to feel free. Uh, and they ended up in reform school. Because California, it plays a huge part in his life all the way through, doesn't it? Because yeah. we all know, you know, the famous song, The Promised Land, is all about a journey to California. And he claimed, he used to claim he was born in San Jose, didn't he? Which he, which he wasn't at all. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, his first song, Maybelline, has a real country feel to it, a Western swing feel. Uh, he wanted to cross a lot of lines. And as long as he could until his picture went everywhere, you know, he didn't mind the public thinking he was white or black, that he was from his, from St. Louis or, or California, San Jose. He thought San Jose made him sound Latino, I think. So, and he actually, in interviews, sometimes spoke in a, in a faux uh, Spanish oh, accent. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. So he was playing both sides of the, of the kind of racial divide. Absolutely. That music just on the radio, you thought, that guy could be like me. Yes, because he, I think you talk about this. Uh, when he starts to develop his, sing, his singing style and his writing style, he says, I, I've got it here, actually, I stressed my diction so I, so I sounded harder and whiter. Talk yeah. about that. Well, uh, one of his biggest icons, his heroes, his role models, was the singer Nat King Cole, uh, who was beloved, at least in part, by white and black audiences, uh, and was a master of diction, of appearing uh, through through his singing style and his presentation, smooth, sociable, uh, inoffensive to all, perhaps, uh, a, an early crossover artist. That's what Chuck wanted. He didn't want, um, although he was a wordsmith and a master of, of different dialects and different ways of communicating, uh, he wanted to be able to communicate to the widest audience. Good diction. So he started, he, he, he first comes to prominence as a member of, uh, of Johnny Johnson's trio. Yeah. The, the guy who was his piano player, but it was originally Johnny's band, wasn't it? So Chuck yeah. joins them. Yeah. And, and is it fair to say that Chuck first achieved prominence as an almost comic performer? I think that's a good way to put it, yeah. He loved and had a natural... Uh, propensity for for making a, a crowd feel good uh he 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 had these theatrical bits that he was doing a lot on the stage acting out the song as well as singing it 
uh, playing country songs to black at first black audiences um, just and they laughed and they they were like, okay, let's have a hoop nanny here. That's the interesting thing. They talk about it. He did a hillbilly act, didn't he? Yeah, that, yeah. that was the way they looked at it. I mean, I think he loved that music for sure. And audience liked it too. But there was also this comic or this uh, play dimension uh, that uh, was was confusing and probably uh, freeing somehow. Right, right. So Maybelline is the first, the first hit. Yeah. Yeah. And that starts life as a kind of, as you say, a Western swing or a, it was a song called Ida Red, wasn't there, that loads of people used to do? And it was, yeah, yeah. It, it, it was a bit like maybe doing a bar band blues song or something, something that was in the air and being recycled constantly over the years. Uh, by the time it came out, it was a Chuck Berry song, but it had its, its, uh, its, its rural roots, its white and black rural roots, hanging all over it. <laughs> right, right. So that, he, he, he goes to chess in Chicago and, uh, and, and makes that record there. And uh, when it comes out, he's not the only person who's credited as being an author of that song, is he? And none of them are the original <laughs> kind of hillbilly writers. Uh, tell us about the other two. Yeah, well, he he was on cloud nine, walking down the street here in in in, in the Ville, uh, you know, storefronts playing his song on as a national hit, uh, and and then when he got a copy of that record in his hands for the first time, he sees his name as a songwriter, but he also sees uh, Alan Freed and a guy named Russ Fratto as songwriters. And who are now, those two? Yeah. Freed he knew about. Freed was a, a, a very important early uh, rock and roll DJ who could make a national hit if he played it a dozen times in a row. And he did. Yeah. Uh, and certainly in part, most of all, because it was a great song, but also because he was promised a lot of money if he did. And this was how he was going to get paid with a songwriting credit. Now, Russ Fratto, uh, nobody knew who that was. He was a, 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 a Chicago gangster figure uh, who played poker with Leonard Chess, owner of Chess Records. Chess was not deep into the mob or anything like that, but it was Chicago. You played poker with, with your friends, and Russ Fratto was one of them, and Leonard Chess owed him some money. So he ended up, what, a third or something like that of, of Maybelline, which even in those days must have been worth having, I would have thought. It, it, it would definitely have been a nice thing to have, for sure. Right, right. So the other, now we talk about Chuck's recklessness. The other, the other um, aspect in which he, he, you could say he was reckless was his encounters with white women, which were, you know, particularly difficult, obviously, at the time. I think his father had told him, if a white woman looks at you, keep a straight face. Is that, is that right? Yeah, don't talk, keep a straight face, get as far away as you can, and that's how you will survive. But he, uh, but he wasn't like that, was he? He, he refused. He refused. He, he wanted to show his dad was, I think, afraid. Uh, there was a generational thing going on there. But there's something very personal going on, too, and that, uh, you know, one can never totally get to the bottom of. Uh, you know, when you traveled in the Deep South playing these segregated shows in the, in the 50s, uh, there were white and black audiences split in different parts of the theater. Uh, after the show, you were surrounded by lots of white fans who wanted to get to know you better. Uh, and Chuck loved that. Chuck, Chuck loved it, you know, and, and, and 
that's the spoils of the game, right? Yeah. I mean, from from Frank Sinatra way before and on, uh, you you get to have that experience, but it's a whole different thing when you're crossing racial lines. Uh, so I think there was a daring and a challenging component to it for Chuck to see what he could prove and get away with, but there was also, you know, a certain putting your neck on the line, risking, you know, your career, your 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 safety. Uh, to be caught as he was, you know, caught, uh, pulled over in a car uh, with a white woman in that car. Yeah. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah. So the, 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 the famous, the kind of dividing line, I suppose, in Chuck Berry's career comes. With the uh, when he's he's famously you know sent to prison for uh, an offence under the so-called Man Act, which relates to taking people across state lines, doesn't it, for allegedly immoral purposes? You you recount that that case uh, uh, involving this woman, is it Janice Escalante? Yes. Um, yes. Um, in in considerable detail, and it is it. It is an extraordinary story, really. You know, that, that was... He clearly was being madly reckless, you know, as you as as just talked about there, you know. Um, and, and that was... And there were, there were definitely huge racial components to, to his conviction and so forth, you know. Yeah. You're, you're recounting the story of the judge, you know, who just couldn't deal with him in a civil manner, really. But but also Chuck was sitting there in the courtroom reading, was he reading Life magazine while <laughs> yeah, while yeah. people were yeah. deliberating about his future? He, he was reading magazines and he was uh, not um, 
making a good argument for himself when he testified. Uh, uh, he was claiming that he, the thing, Janice Escalante was a 14 year old Native American girl uh, who uh, Chuck always said, told him she was of age, of legal age, uh, but she was 14 years old. So uh, on some level, the case was about, uh, but it wasn't about her being 14 and she wasn't looked at as a victim at all. She was looked at as sort of roadkill along the way yep. so that they could get to Chuck Berry. Uh, and he, he said that he picked her up and took her across, took her home to St. Louis with him to, um, to, to teach him Spanish. <laughs> she, was, uh, she was part Mexican-American uh, and Native American and, and, uh, and he wanted to learn Spanish to sing uh, like Nat King Cole did to, to Spanish audiences. That's what he said. That's what he said. But anyway, he, he went to prison. Yes. And one of the points you make in the book, which I never realised this, is that lots of people didn't know where he'd gone, did they really? It was, kind of, it was a very different media landscape. You know, you could, you could sort of disappear for a while, could you? Yes, yes. And, and the press would largely help you disappear by not getting the details of your case, which are complicated and, you know, get you off, uh, off your plot line. So um, he recorded a lot of stuff before he went to prison. He had, he had a year and a half or so uh, to plan for, for his, his, his imprisonment. Uh, he recorded a ton. Uh, and so there were records uh, somewhat being released while he was, quote unquote, gone. Um, yeah, something else is going on at the time, which is everything is changing. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, particularly yeah. in the UK, isn't it? Because because you know he comes out of prison, nineteen sixty three. Is it sixty three? I think it is. Yes. And uh, you know, Beatlemania. You know, Britain is full of bands, and they're all playing Chuck Berry songs. Just about <laughs> all of them are playing Chuck Berry songs, and he's yeah. kind of reborn, certainly in the UK. As, as not a rock and roll performer, but a, but a rhythm and blues performer. Because that's the way, because rock and roll was regarded as a bit passe in the UK. Whereas if you, you know, if you said it's black performers, it's rhythm and blues. You know, everybody was kind of happy with that. The, the Rolling Stones said, we play rhythm and blues. They don't play rock and roll at all. That was the way they looked at it. And Chuck, Chuck Berry was kind of the, the beneficiary of this, wasn't he? So he, he comes out and he... He tours in the UK, doesn't he, with, you know, all, all yeah. these acts like the Animals and the Nashville Teens. And he, he must have been, he must have thought he was really blessed, mustn't he, when he came out? <laughs> he sure did. He, he loved that experience, 64, 65, a couple of early tours, uh, that, that he was beloved. Uh, he was playing his music to this huge audience. And it was the inverse of the United States, as you say, where to be a rhythm and blues artist in the United States was sort of like it meant you were a black guy. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> that's sure. what it meant. And and so, uh, which which means you're um, off to the side of what's really going on, quote unquote. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it must have just he, you know, he he must have wanted to move there. Well, yeah, not quite, but uh, he certainly did very well out of it, and of course. There's, Everybody tells the stories about about Chuck's legendary fondness for cash, you know, for being paid in a very particular fashion. And I think you, you've got the stories of somebody, an English guy who befriended him on one of those tours, whose job every day was to go out and get the Financial Times, wasn't it? Why did you tell us about this and why, why he did well, this? So, so Chuck wanted to get paid in cash the day of the show. 
and and uh, in a brown paper bag actually and and so um so by by checking the exchange rate in the in the financial times one could find out exactly how much in cash in the local currency he was to be paid that day uh and and he wouldn't he he wouldn't run the risk of being cheated and he would be in a better bargaining position along the way uh you know he also did things like uh, if you wanted an encore you, the show is over he's in the wings uh the audience is cheering and calling out for him and he would look to the promoter and he'd say I'd really love to do an encore, uh, you know, 200 more pounds, please. <laughs> and he'd do this all the way through his career, wouldn't he, really? He'd, he liked nothing more than having somebody, the promoter or whatever, by the balls and, you know, and being able to get a few extra dollars out of them, didn't he? He loved that. I, I think that was part of what kept him going. <laughs> right. So he was, um, you know, he, he, you talk about, you know, Bill Graham. You know, in the in the later sixties, you you know, you got the Fillmores and all these kind of circuits, and you know, the the rock festivals and so forth, and um, and people like Bill Graham are going to him, sort of expecting him to be grateful for the attention, but he's not really at, at all, is he? Yeah. No. I mean, that was the time when, as you say, he had people, uh, you know, by their privates uh, when when they wanted him on their stage, and if he didn't appear they were going to be held responsible for it or be sued so uh he looked at it he he never looked like uh anything was going on except that he was doing everybody a favor and and he was in many yes. ways he was putting on a chuck berry show playing chuck berry music but um he he wasn't going to act grateful he was uh, nor arguably should he he, no, absolutely. He never at any stage did that. Whereas people like B.B. King kind of did that, didn't they? They said, yeah. I'm really grateful for the likes of Eric Clapton or whatever for keeping my music in the forefront. Chuck Berry never did that. No, no. It aided him that he didn't have the, as much as he loved uh, hearing that, the you know, seeing those checks come from those stones and the Beatles covering his songs, it aided him that they had a, a, an access to the world that he could not have. Yeah, yeah, but the 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 one the one number one he had is is the least typical Chuck Berry number one, isn't it? Tell us the story of that. Yes, well, for many years he'd been doing live at the Fillmore in San Francisco and other places uh, a song that goes way way back, but uh, it is called My Dingaling. And it was a rhythm and blues hit, and it goes back to the, the swing band song Little Brown Jug and. It, way before that but but by the by the time it was my dingling it was kind of a body um you know kind of a music hall kind of number in a way maybe uh and a call and response with the audience singing about their dingling or the men singing about their dingling and the women singing about their dingling uh and it's a childish uh <laughs> novelty it's puerile let's be <laughs> let's be honest yes yes, yes. It is, uh, and so many tributes mounted to Chuck Berry, the movie Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll. Keith Richards' job number one was to make sure that they did not do My ding a <laughs> live. <laughs> but it was, it was recorded at Lanchester Polytechnic in the Midlands in the UK during a tour of 1972, is that right? Yes, yes. 
Yes. And, and, and it was uh, number one in the UK. Was it a big hit in America as well? It because- was huge in America. It was controversial. There were, as, 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 there, as there was where you are, uh, you know, efforts to keep it off the air and, and the BBC trying to keep it off the air and, you know, s- sensible AM stations here trying to keep it off the air. You couldn't stop it, even if you wanted to. <laughs> so just moving further forward, there was the... His court, his tribulations with the legal system were not over, were they, in the, in the 60s? Yeah. yeah they, they returned towards the end of his life. And there's an extraordinary court case, which is it's almost too tawdry for words, <laughs> yeah. the, yeah. the later stuff. But you, you do recount it there. I mean, he was, he was um, you know, he was the kind of, uh, he was the lord of the local manor, wasn't he, where he lived. You know, everybody kind of worked for Chuck, didn't they, one way or another. Tell us about that. Yeah. He had like a, a rural compound or a suburban semi-farmland compound outside of St. Louis in a town called Wentzville. It was Berry Park. And there was this vision early on of making sort of a, a integrated black and white Disneyland country club kind of space. And they had shows there and rock festivals over the years. But it became, by the late 80s, a, a private uh, kind of a playboy mansion for Chuck Berry. Yeah. And, and at... Barry Park. He had uh, also, there was a restaurant nearby. He had cameras installed in the restrooms and the dressing rooms of the women's, the women's dressing room and restroom. And at, at Barry Park, he had similar setup and he got in a lot of trouble for uh, videotapes. Right. It's just, a, it, it again, it is that kind of, it's that recklessness, isn't it? You know, that he didn't, he never at any stage kind of went away, you know, and lived behind a high wall where nobody could see what he was doing. It was like he, he sort of wanted people to notice him, didn't he? He, he did. And also, I think what, what happened was, uh, uh, you know, Wentzville, the police gave him a hard time. Uh, when, when this stuff blew up, as it should, uh, that got him more notorious. And I think part of why he never left the region, never left Wentzville, was because he wasn't going to let the SOBs get him down. No. That, that kept him going too. Was it, it, he dug in and he loved fighting back. Yeah, yeah. Did he have – it's easy to, to read your book and think he had no friends. Is that <laughs> fair? Wow. I, you know, I would say he had – he didn't have friends the way we have friends probably. He had business relationships. He had people that cared about him and family members – but he didn't have guys and, and women that he hung out with and, and had a burger with and, and caught up on the news of the day exactly. It, it was he just didn't. No one's really knew Chuck, I don't think. No, 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 no. And do do you think his music is is something that sounds even more impressive the further we get from it now? It, it's never gone away. It's never um, going to go away. Uh, it's always going to have a meaning, rhythmic interest and lyric interest. Uh, the figure he created, the rock star, uh, still of interest. Yeah. And that's the, the other thing, actually, I meant to mention, that uh, we often don't, don't pick up on in the UK, is Johnny B. Good was a country boy, as they said. 
but that kind of meant colored boy, didn't it? In the, in that's the, the original, that's the original lyric. It was, was deep down. Yeah. It was a colored boy named Johnny B. Good. Uh, he realized, or maybe Leonard Chess made, made it obvious to him that you've got a great song here. Don't mess it up on the air by, by limiting your audience. Really? Yes. Yeah. So finally, what is the greatest Chuck Berry record? Because I know the answer. I know the answer, but you well, may have you may have your own answer. Oh my gosh, it changes a lot, but really uh, for me, uh, "Let It Rock" that song. Let it oh rock. well, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, that's that's probably my favorite. What's yours? You never can tell. Ah, uh, yeah. You know, that was what I was going to call the book. That was the title of the book for a long time. Was you never can tell. Oh. So we, you're reopening the case that I've been ongoing litigation. Oh dear. Well, yeah. So well, uh, don't let me uh, don't let me dissuade no, you forever. Yeah, subtitling the paperback or whatever. You never can tell. Chuck Berry. You never can tell. But it, here it is. Chuck Berry and American Life by R.J. Smith, and it really is an absolutely terrific, absorbing read. And uh, and I've read books about Chuck Berry before. And this has got lots and lots I didn't know. It's been lovely talking to you. David, thank you for having me. It's been great talking to you. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>